0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very exciting guests. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello, First, uh, Riva, could you introduce yourself a little bit and explain how you got really excited about Glenn work, work, uh, liberal radicalism and radical markets?
1: Um, yeah, I have a background in venture capital. I spent the last few years running a, a venture capital fund. And through that, I got more interested in economic theory, I suppose, as a whole and politics. A friend recommended me radical markets and I ended up on a big deep dive. So I'm very excited to be here and to talk to Glenn.
0: Awesome. Riva, do you want to, do you want to start us off?
1: Okay. Well, you know, Glenn, here's something that you don't know because you don't know me, but I come from a very different school of economic thought. You know, I spent in August, I spent time doing research with the Hoover Institute at Stanford, you know, you know, quite conservative. And one of the things I really loved about radical markets was that. It's really rare, and I think we had this uh, Twitter dialogue yesterday about this, it's really rare to have people actually put ideas out into the arena. It's much easier to criticize stuff without uh, being the man in the arena, as Roosevelt once said. Why do you think it's so rare? Do you think it's always been this way?
2: Well, I think that there was a big loss of courage in our society, really over the course of the 60, 70 years following the Second World War, mostly because... Things were so stable and prosperous and peaceful and so forth that people didn't want to rock the boat. So the courage that early political economists like John Stuart Mill and Karl Marx and Henry George and so forth had really got lost in a much more sort of technocratic, narrow, conservative way of approaching uh, social policy.
1: Right. Yeah, it feels like the last 100 years, the debate has really been around kind of socialism versus capitalism. And I think one of the things I really appreciated from the kind of historical context of how you came to think about radical markets as a book was your reference to economists that lots of people hadn't heard of. I I think I've seen some of your presentations where you present this picture of Henry George and nobody knows who he is, which I thought was really shocking. Uh, mainly because his book was just so big in America at the end of the 19th century. It's just, it seems like outside of the traditional capitalism, socialism debates that a lot of the schools of thought have kind of been forgotten.
2: Yeah, he was very big in Britain as well. Um, He was enormously influential on the British Liberal Party, the new Liberal Party. uh, David Lloyd George, actually, in 1909, 1910, basically, ran on implementing George's tax. And in fact, Winston Churchill first made his name as a sort of populist Georgist agitator in the first decade of the 20th century. So he was really tremendously influential all over the world.
1: Yeah, and so why do you think, um, in your experience, that his stuff has been so, I guess, not recognized now by contemporary people working on economic stuff?
2: Well, I think that what happened... From the public's perspective was that the capitalism-communism debate, just because of the victory of Lenin and all the conflicts that ensued, became so dominant. And it sort of conceptually left no space for George, who was this radically free market, sort of socialist-ish figure, that because everything was framed in that way, that whole perspective got lost right
1: i i didn't actually know as much about henry george until i'd you know picked him up again after uh reading the references in in your book and one of the things i really loved when i was reading about him was about how he'd spent all this time in san francisco and there was this great quote of how he like looked over the land of san francisco and noticed this big wealth divide you know something that eric and i experienced in our daily daily lives which is this Kind of wealth divide and housing crisis in San Francisco, where you know George was also a resident. And I think what I, I really appreciated from Radical Markets was your approach to um, applying this, like, George's school of thinking to issues that would tackle things in San Francisco even now, even in our neighborhoods. So, can you present a little bit about the um, about your background thinking around Radical Markets and how a place like San Francisco could benefit from it?
2: Well, you know, George was very motivated by cities in general. And many of the figures in my book were motivated by cities, including myself. I was in Rio de Janeiro with my wife, who's a political scientist of Latin America, when these ideas first started brewing in my head. And the thing that I think is even more strikingly true of Rio than is of San Francisco is you have this sort of co-occurrence of these dramatic inequalities with the sort of waste of a lot of land. A lot of land in these places where it's incredibly valuable ends up being filled up with some tiny little shack or something like this. And it's really hard to make sense of it all. And, you know, George's idea was these things were actually two sides of the same coin, that the same sorts of monopoly control over land that led to dramatic inequalities in wealth. Also led to rigidities where something would end up being really underutilized for long periods of time. And that by having a tax that forced people to rather than monopolize land, if they couldn't use it productively, return it to common use, to, to others to use better, would both redistribute the value of land so it was more broadly held, but at the same time, uh, actually ensure that land was used most productively.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, we see that a lot. So I've never been to Rio, although I experienced it a bit through radical markets. You know, you see a lot in San Francisco with this, uh, you know, empty vacant properties and this huge demand of housing. And, you know, people trying to think about how to solve those those crises that are happening around us. Um, I think that the things that you presented in the book were an example of, of a way that that could be which I thought was great. Well, what what has been to you the most, you know, things that the thing from the book that has shocked the most people? Has it been the kind of property stuff or the immigration stuff? What what has been the response that you felt was, you know, seen as the most striking?
2: Well, it's really funny because it sort of all depends what one means and which group of people you talk about. Among libertarians, the immigration stuff seems to just be kind of obvious or perhaps not radical enough and the property stuff is totally shocking. Among mm-hmm. leftists, the immigration stuff is utterly scandalous, and the property stuff is a bit odd, but you know, basically sound. The sort of uniform across the political spectrum combination of both praise and blame for the book has really been fascinating, <laughs> which is really what... In some ways, I was going for you know, you mentioned that we came from different political schools, but you know, I come from so many different political schools, it's hard for you to get away from me that easily because I was a socialist and democratic activist in my elementary and early middle school years, and then I became an Ayn Rand follower and founded a national teenage Republican organization during high school. And then I've sort of been trying to figure out how it's possible to inhabit both of those ideologies at the same time ever since. So, yeah. So we're not
1: too different. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's no escape. Um, I guess, yeah, I, I think one of the things that I've learned over my life is that the best people kind of change schools of thought. They're not dogmatic all the time. It's like, I would I would say that my views on this thing have dramatically changed over the last year whilst I've been researching new ideas. And, and, and radical markets, reading the book and liberal radicalism, push me into a new direction because I'm open to it. And I think that that's an important factor to be open to new ideas.
2: That's the number one factor I've found explains whether people are interested in these ideas or not. It's not people on the left, it's not people on the right, it's people with open minds and you know as we've been forming a movement around this we have people from the far left to the far right and all spectrums of the middle and if they're open minded uh they're they're very engaged with the ideas
1: so see i mean i i think people were quite shocked when i was buying copies of radical markets and giving it to people because you know it has this socialist ish you know theme to it and for me, it was just such an amazing example of something that we haven't seen for a long time, like maybe not since Milton Friedman, even, where you have this example of how things could actually be different, as opposed to just a criticism of the current status quo. And uh, yeah, I was just, I was very, very inspired by that. So uh, thanks, I suppose, <laughs> number one.
2: Well, um, I, I call myself these days a social technologist because I think there's almost no word at present that describes. Actually, trying to find big picture solutions to things. And everyone expects that from technology, but no one expects it in the social sphere. So I, I've sort of adopted that nomenclature.
1: I love that. That's great. That could be part of the new movement, right? Because tech is something that everyone can get behind. But I feel, and maybe you feel the same, that econ generally as an industry is seen as this kind of like academic theory and not very much implemented in terms of ideas and applications into like new ways of doing stuff and what i thought was really great about radical markets is that not only do you present these ideas but you spin off these kind of suggestions of how these things could be about could go about as well as the limitations like you also present the limitations in the book which i which i really respected and the paper that you wrote with vitalik i mean how did that come about and and
2: zoe well, the whole relationship with Vitalik has been quite fascinating. I got to know him first when he tweeted out one of my papers that went into the book. And I had no idea who he was when he did it. When I started looking him up, he seemed kind of like a Bond villain to me. You know, like a <laughs> tw- 24-year-old, you know, multi-millionaire living in some obscure village in Switzerland. and then. I noticed that the one tweet that he'd done got me more Twitter traffic than I'd gotten from my entire history of being on Twitter. So I thought at least I'd send him a copy of my book and get his reaction to it. And he sent me 20 pages of comments, which eventually he condensed into a five page blog post that he put out, which I thought was one of the best, probably the best review that I've gotten of the book in terms of not being positive, but actually taking the ideas seriously, which is much more important. And really engaging with them on both the strengths and weaknesses rather than just being, you know, dismissive. And that led us to write something short together. And for me to suggest in an offhanded way that we develop one idea that hadn't fully been worked out in the book together. But that ended up becoming this paper, Liberal Radicalism, which actually I, would, I think is probably the single thing I produced intellectually I'm most proud of. And he, You know, as we were going through it, he was particularly excited about the philosophical aspects that I wanted to bring to it. And I had met Zoe, who's trained in philosophy and is now pursuing a PhD in economics. And I thought she would be the perfect person to round that out. And also it was great because Zoe comes from sort of a very lefty background and was very skeptical of the book in many ways. But I really thought this idea sort of answered a lot of the concerns that she had, and that if we could bring her around and really make her think about it that way, that we really would have accomplished something. So it was almost a hurdle, you know, to have her involved. But she's been a fabulous collaborator, and I really do feel we've managed to synthesize a very broad range of perspectives that way.
1: Tosi, I mean, one of the things that I've been I've ended up doing over the last few days, and I, I will admit, it took me a solid two weeks to finish the paper. <laughs> so I don't know how long it took you to write it. There's a lot of stuff to digest in that. And, um, you know, some complex math that is not obvious to the lay, lay person. But I ended up finding Zoe's poetry, which I uh, have been enjoying the last the last few days. So, um, you know, behind she's it, quite really talented. Come- yeah, behind every econ PhD is a secret skill of creative creativity, which I have massively. Oh, enjoyed-
2: not 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 every econ PhD behind behind <laughs> very special people. That's why I'm very lucky to work with her.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. I hang out with lots of econ PhDs, and they're not writing poetry on their side on, on the side. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, in terms of the of the paper, it took me two weeks to read it uh, to read it and understand it to some level. How much time did you guys spend in in, in committing to it and kind of like after the blog post and you guys discussing this, what were the steps that kind of, like how long did it take and, and and what were the intentions of creating the paper?
2: Well, the paper is doing multiple different things in an interwoven and sort of simultaneous way. It's trying to be a very practical proposal. And in fact, we developed it at the invitation of Susan Athey, who's a leading economist at Stanford, and she's having a conference tomorrow and the day after on ways in which you can use markets to um, do philanthropy more effectively. It's called market shaping. And she had invited me to participate in this conference, and we actually decided to work on this thing, basically, but she invited something, and I wanted someone to collaborate on it with, and so I asked Vitalik if he wanted to. So that was the genesis of all this. So it was a very, very practical... Attempt to address a very particular concrete problem that Susan had on the one hand. On the other hand, I, over the course of the summer, because of all the interest in this, have been trying to sort of free myself from the conventions of standard academic journals and to write in a new way that can touch on a lot of different issues and speak to a lot of different types of communities. And this paper was methodologically sort of. The first attempt that I made at this new style of writing, which combines philosophy and some mathematical economics and some very practical stuff and some computer science thinking and, and tries to put it all together and thereby recover a, a different kind of writing, you know, a spirit of what the political economists that we were talking about before used to do. And at the same time, It's really a deep philosophical reflection and a novel piece of economic theory and so forth and so on. So I I expect very few people will be able to read most of it. It's more, there's many different things there and you can investigate all those different potential layers. And in terms of how long it took us to write, I think most of it was done during August, honestly. We had outlined things and the ideas came together Over the course of the summer, we really sat down to write it in August, which is when
0: Zoe started working with us. What what did you want people to walk away with uh, after reading your paper? Like, what were you hoping? uh, And did you want different groups of people to take different things from it? Or what what were you hoping the effect of it would have?
2: Well, I, I hope that for the blockchain community and for Susan's community and so forth, it would be a very practical basis, almost like a white paper in the sense of like the Ethereum community or. The blockchain community, like like a, a blueprint for really building something, and at the same time, I wanted for economists for it to be a like important novel piece of economic theory, and I wanted it for philosophers to be a serious attempt to solve one of the more longstanding debates in philosophy. So, who knows for what fraction of people it accomplished that goal? But that that was the aim was for it to be simultaneously all those things and better at each one of them because it did the others.
1: Well, you took on a complex problem, right, which is the incentive and design of funding public goods. And uh, this is an old, old debate that has you know, been in contention for centuries. <laughs> so it was just a, a very contemporary example of people trying to solve that problem in a novel way. and. One of the things I also found interesting was that you know you reference blockchains and you know you, you co-author this paper with Vitalik, but in some of your other interviews, you're quite skeptical about the uh, about the blockchain crypto space. Um, can you allude a bit a, a bit a bit about that? I think actually in one point you said that blockchains formalize property claims but not voting, so you have this kind of uh, non-democratic process to private property.
2: Yeah, <laughs> still think that. So... Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, by the way, I think Vitalik has a lot of skepticism about the blockchain as well. Despite yeah, no, being no. <laughs> one of the great leaders in the space, I, I think most of the people who aren't skeptical aren't much of Honest. leaders in the space. <laughs> maybe they're naive or maybe they're dishonest, but, but, or some combination thereof, <laughs> strategically naive. But uh, Vitalik, I think mostly shares with me the view that, you know, the current Architecture of the blockchain space has very strong protections of private property. That's what it's about. It's supposed to make private property totally immutable and, and irreversible. And at the same time, its governance is driven by who has the most computers effectively. And computers are, are wealth. So you basically have a society of absolute private property governed by a plutocracy. And if you think about the distribution of holdings of something like ether, I would guess it's far more unequal than the distribution of wealth in the United States, which is itself unbelievably unequal. So to the extent it's going to be an image of a allegedly decentralized society, it doesn't seem to be on a particularly great trajectory, right? So. I don't think the system is living up to its aspirations. And at the same time, there's been a significant lack of substantive designs of what this world is actually going to look like. And so I actually think a lot of the interest in radical markets has come precisely from a widespread sense that the system not just something coming from me, but a widespread sense, including among people like Vitalik, that the system has a valuable set of ideals, but maybe rapidly heading in the direction of undermining its own ideals.
1: Right, and I think one of the things you allude to in the book and the paper is that one of the values of blockchain technology is this kind of lim- limited space where you can do things like test incentive design and market design even, to see what works and what doesn't. It's, it's you know, little simulated worlds where you can test these ideas out. I've, I've already heard some of the examples that you've given, but what are the, some of the examples that uh, you like of you know projects that are incorporating some of the principles of radical markets in, in blockchain technology?
2: Well, there's a very cool import-export business uh, called XM Chain that's trying to use the... Quadratic voting method to select block makers, so that that's quite an interesting experiment. I think one very cool thing that is being tried is Decentraland, is think which is a sort of Ethereum based virtual world, a little bit like Second Life, is trying to create use the fifteen percent of property that they haven't yet sold off to be a basis for experimentation with these ideas and see whether they actually generate a more dynamic space that could then raise enough revenue to start buying out other places. One thing I just learned about is there's actually a collaborative space sort of accelerator in Bushwick, New York, which hosts lots of blockchain places, that's thinking of governing a physical space that way, which I think is super cool. And Perhaps my favorite source of ideas within the blockchain world for this, or at least the coolest, is a guy named uh, Simon de la Ruvier, who has all these crazy, interesting ideas about how to actually use this inside of art. So, for example, there's, he has this idea of a million-dollar homepage, which is like a collaboratively created website where everyone owns one pixel or a few pixels, but that could be governed under some of these property regimes in order to make for cooler designs.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. I've been following that. Uh, it's it's an awesome application of, of your ideas. But yeah, I just I found it really striking. I guess that you know one of the use cases of blockchain, which of blockchain tech that people hadn't thought about, was this kind of experimental breeding ground of incentive design. And uh, I think if I can remember correctly, some of the examples that you use in the in the paper with Vitalik and Zoe is you know um, campaign financing or open source software and what were the, what were the what were the other what were the other Well ones news can media
2: finance is my news media. personal yeah. favorite.
1: Okay so expand more on that. Why is that one the one that you think is the best application of, of of these ideas?
2: Well so what liberal radicalism the the paper with Vitalik and Zoe is trying to solve is the problem of funding public goods without having to presuppose that it's all going to be done by some particular democratic government somewhere. Because we know that when you have some particular democratic government controlling the media, it can easily undermine democracy or undermine a lot of the values that we're actually trying to achieve through having a free and independent media. So, the, But on the other hand, we we don't believe that just purely private capitalist funding of media is going to succeed. We've seen in recent years how difficult it's been for the media to fund high-quality investigative journalism, given all the difficulties of getting any return on having a scoop in today's connected world. So the question is, what can you do? How can you do something like funding National Public Radio or ProPublica but without having just some wealthy individual or government say, this is good news, this is fake news, et cetera, in a way that's deeply undemocratic. So that's what we're trying to solve for. We can't do it through democracy because it would give too much power to either the majority or to those that we elect. We can't do it through philanthropy because it gives too much power to a philanthropist. So how do we have a decentralized but sort of public provision of those goods? And I I think news calls out for that more than pretty much any any other area for those reasons.
1: Uh, Yeah, I like that. And I think it's a good segue into, this is going to be quite shocking. I'm sure it's not the common answer, but my favorite chapter of Radical Markets was chapter four. (laughs) Is that a common? Is is dismembering the octopus a a common favorite chapter of the book? Or am I like a weirdo? Among
2: a a, a select set of uh, technocratic geeks, sure. You know,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's not the coolest chapter to, in terms of radical thought. But one of the reasons why I love that book so much and, and kind of going back to your comments about um, about media is that, I mean, I experienced some of the power of uh, institutional funds by setting up a venture capital fund in San Francisco and, and seeing the monopoly between startups and industries and limited partners behind funds. And one of the things that you and Eric presented in Chapter 4, which I loved, was how these groups and these monopolies limit the choices and opportunities of people in their day-to-day lives. And that's relevant to the media, too, in terms of the information that they can consume. And often we can only deal with the problems, in the aftermath of something bad that's gone, that's happened as a result, like a recession or a financial crisis. And I guess, you know, to me, it's such a powerful idea from radical markets was this, how do you dismember these, these uh, large institutional groups that don't work in our for our advantage yeah like why haven't antitrust laws worked here like what can we actually do like what are the next steps uh how do we dismantle the media octopus
2: the media octopus that's an interesting one well you know i think that the problem is that and this is true more broadly in economics that economics has despite its radical potential ended up becoming effectively a fig leaf, you could call it, or a disguise for the interests of a pretty narrow part of society. Antitrust was brought under this economic regime. It used to be much vaguer. It used to be much more about some general notion of corporate power. and Economics played a real role in trying to sharpen that and focus it. But the thing is, rather than focusing it or redirecting it towards the economically most important things. Instead, in practice, it really ended up defending against the defending concentrated uh, corporate interests in practice against people trying to limit their power. And I think that's really unfortunate. I don't think it's true to economics. I don't think it is what economic theory says. I think it's what economic theory is used to rationalize. And as a result, a lot of people on the left or a lot of people who who are more bold or critical have come to view economics as the problem. But I don't think it's economics that's the problem. I think it's the abuse of economics in defense of status quo power.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean that kind of makes sense. It's a it's kind of a neutral tool that you can use towards your your own, your own benefit. I mean, that... So, for me, chapter four was my favorite chapter. But another chapter that I feel from the interviews I've watched with you that isn't discussed enough is the uh, chapter on automation in the labor market. Because the widespread assumption is that, you know, much like 40 years ago at the birth of the modern-day computer, that artificial intelligence will displace all jobs. Or oh, at least... Many jobs. And the argument you present in the book is that we kind of need to turn that idea on its head, that algorithms can't do anything without training data from human, training data from humans and that the humans hold the key to the kingdom. And it's just that until now we've been handing over these assets without any sort of compensation. And you imagine a world in the book where human data is not only protected, but, you know, potentially unionized. What is stopping us from being asked to do that now? And what obstacles could you see from preventing it happen in the long run?
2: I think the biggest thing standing in our way is what I would call class consciousness. It's people being aware of the value of their data and how it's being taken from them without compensation. And I think the biggest thing that will change it is if people become aware of how much value they're contributing. And I think that's one reason why I'm actually very happy to talk to some of the big companies, even the ones that I think are part of the problem about this, because I think if they start talking about it, they'll lose control of it. Once people are aware of how much they're adding, even if a company for its strategic advantage is trying to just be the first one to lead on it, pretty soon it will stimulate a whole groundswell of people organizing to protect their interests.
1: And you can imagine perhaps even some sort of corporate virtue signal where someone takes the narrative spin of, Hey, we care about your data and these assets that you're providing for us. And we're going to be the first company to compensate you and using that as kind of like a opening to the changes that are needed for that. You know, or maybe the other thing is, and I think you presented this idea briefly in the book, you know, if, if there was a company that came along that was able to demonstrate to people how much they were giving away like some sort of ticker that kind of shows you how much uh, you're producing for these kind of tech giants. And maybe we aware of it so that they could kind of associate these seemingly free products with the fact that they are producing something. So maybe it's something that a, a startup or a new company could disrupt into the collective consciousness of people that they are producing value every day. What do you think about that?
2: I think that's a great idea. I I think that it's one of many things that will help bring awareness to people. Ultimately, though, I think we're going to need to ha- have organizations that not just make people aware, but help them actually engage in bargaining. And I have a piece coming out with Jaron Lanier, uh, perhaps right when this podcast comes out. I'm not sure when when it'll come out, but it, it'll be on uh, Wednesday, the 26th of September, that tries to give a series of principles for how to design organizations that can actually be effective like that. Things we call mediators of individual data or MIDS.
1: Ooh, I'm so excited for that. Yeah, no, <laughs> oh, but... I, wish I, I wish I could read that now. Uh,
2: I I might be able to throw it your way, Riva. We'll see. <laughs>
1: <But before laughs> Listen, you... I got to get paid for these questions somehow. If The one thing exactly. I get is early access.
2: Exactly. For your data, mm-hmm. right?
1: Exactly. I'm giving you my data right now with these questions. I'm showing you my sentiment. Someone is doing NLP and passing my questions to figure out who I am as a person. So I should be, you know, I should get some reward for that.
0: Glenn, why is, before getting, getting into some of the topics in the paper, why is, you've mentioned this in the podcast, but also elsewhere, why is Jaron one of the, or the most interesting thinker uh, you've come across?
2: Well, Oddly enough, and I did an interview with Jaron in the magazine Logic recently about this. For all the work that I've done with Jaron on the economy and how much he's affected my views on that area, what I've actually learned the most from Jaron about is about the human sensory experience and honestly human sexuality. So which is completely crazy because of course that has nothing to do with what we work on at all. But someone who can teach you so much about that and who can also change some of my fundamental views about economics, which I've been focused on really since I was 12 years old is someone who is a uniquely visionary person.
1: I love that your your respect are as someone who pushes you into a new wave of thinking, because I feel that that's not something that a lot of people say. They kind of want people to say they're right in what they think. And you know, I had a view about the economy, and when I read your book and the paper, you fractured my model. And I'm very grateful for that, but I feel that it's not something that, not the traditional way in which respect is passed, unfortunately, especially not in traditional academia.
2: Well, I'll tell you, uh, Jaron and I were just working on this piece together, and we had a conflict over universal basic income. I didn't like the way that he was talking about universal basic income. But one thing I found with Jaron is many, many times he will say something. I won't really understand it. I'll think he's wrong. And maybe he's not expressing it quite in my terms. But after a while, I'll come to realize that there's a deep truth to what he's saying. And he's really shifted my views and, and continues to shift my views on a variety of things uh, that way. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. Well, I, you know. Exchange, so the kind of movement that you're on paper, um, I'm hoping that it will bring more people together that have this kind of open view about economics and philosophy and even, you know, sociology and psychology so that, you know, if if your um, beacon, which I think the book is, is towards open thinkers – then this movement I'm hoping, which I would love to be part of is something that is, I was about uh, to say,
2: I'm really <laughs> hoping to get you involved. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I'm hoping that the one thing that you're bringing together is, you know, I don't agree with everything in the book and, but at the same time, I'm aware of the limitations. I, I, I see how much I didn't know two years ago and how much I know now. And I, it's a continuing process, but Apart from the fact that I'm excited about the social movement in terms of meeting like-minded, open thinkers, what are your goals uh, and intentions with this movement? Did you expect that this would be something that would be able to spun off just from the book?
2: Well, Milton Friedman, when he wrote Capitalism and Freedom, struggled for many years to get people to really take it seriously. And he really had to start with young people and build up from there. And I sort of expected it was going to be a similar process. But there's something maybe about the social media era, maybe about the blockchain that has made it possible for this to happen at a pace I couldn't possibly have imagined. You know, I was touring around, not coming up for air, you know, taking two or three red eyes a week for three months on this book. And then I got about two months of break from that pace. And I thought that I would just take those that time to you know get back to my usual life but it turns out that like billions of dollars of capital had gone into startups around this area that there were all these activist groups starting so my life got completely absorbed into trying to even make sense of all of that and then find some way in which to organize it and about a month ago that led me to try to form and some sort of a structure around this and in the time between then it's come to be the case that I can actually give a call to action to people when they when I you know tweet or when I give these talks and every one of these talks I'm giving now I'm getting five you know people volunteering you know hours and hours and hours of their time every week to work on this and at this point now my executive director can't even handle all the people who want to help out with the project. I think we've got dozens of people now working with us on on organizing this conference and movement and it's really just been it's been an overwhelming experience and it really I think shows how much people are needing something of this shape right now.
1: Well I will say that I am sitting at home right now in San Francisco next to my cat and my cat is called Milton after Milton Friedman <laughs> so you know there's a there's a, a big space for you know maybe in a few years I'll get a cat and I can call it uh, you know Glenn and uh <laughs> oh. we, can some, we can have some replacements uh, uh, Did you, you
2: know do you know do you know the story about me and Milton Friedman when I was a kid
1: No no, no you sure. have to tell us
2: so uh when I was thirteen years old, right after I'd been converted to an Ayn Randy, I basically read like ten or twenty thousand pages worth of economics in one year and I sent a fan letter to Milton Friedman at the age of thirteen and he wrote back to me and he said, I I write not only to acknowledge receipt of your love letter, but also to inquire about a point of fact you say that you are thirteen, I assume you meant twenty-three, please respond. And I wrote back to him and we invited him over for coffee because he lived, you know, he was in the Hoover Institute at the time, and we lived in Los Altos Hills just behind Palo Alto, but I never got a reply. And I never got to meet him before he died, which was a bit a bit heartbreaking because he really was a hero to me from a very early age but I do treasure that le- letter. And yeah, it's definitely part of my my childhood that, that really uh, sticks.
1: I love that. I think that um, something that a lot of people in kind of, I mean, we're of the generation, you know, that being enthusiastic and making actions and writing letters are kind of frowned upon. It's like not cool to do this sort of thing. But I feel like Personally, most of the success I've got in my life is by being enthusiastic and reaching out to people somewhat naively. When I was 13, I went to, I turned up at a Sam Harris, um, Richard Dawkins talk and I threw it into the school and they ended up mentoring me during my teenage years. And I cold emailed the Hoover Institution because I was just like, I want to learn more about the research. And it opened up an opportunity to like write a paper with a professor there. And there's something about, I guess, like millennial nihilism that, uh, is stopping people from being proactive around presenting new ideas and what i love about this movement that you're trying to create is that you're saying hey like we are going to commit to something we're going to commit to you know there is a disagreement maybe in in the ways to do it but we're going to commit that there should be a change and even the title of the social movement you know alludes to that and it's just, like, a re- so refreshing in a time when enthusiasm is seen as, like, so uncool. Well, um, Riva, so- it's
2: amazing how much you and I have in common. Because when I was in seventh grade, not only did I write to Friedman, but I also got in touch with a guy named Bill Evers. I don't know if you've met him at the Hoover Institute. Yes. But he's, a, he's an education scholar. And I worked with him. And I used to spend a day a week at the Hoover Institute while I was in middle school. So uh, <laughs> uh, you and I have... Very similar trajectory of that, but yes, I mean, look, it—it's it, really frustrating to me the cynicism that exists. You know, there's all these folks out there who just love being critical, and they're critical, and they're critical, and they're critical. And the truth is, it's incredibly conservative just to be critical because if you're just critical of everything, it just defends the status quo. It—it it saps any possibility for change. You need to stand for something at some point, and. You know, for years, people told me what well, you have to do as an academic. You have to be careful. You have to be precise. You have to do this. You have to just do it. And it didn't make sense to me. What made sense to me was figuring out what you think is right, studying it carefully, and then standing up for it. But I was told that wasn't the right thing to do. And now what I've done is I've just said, screw that. I'm going to do what I think sounds right. And, you know, now I used to be, it's like I used to be on top of a little hill. And now I'm on a big Mount Everest and I'm way higher than I was on that hill, but everything around me is dark, you know, and there's pitfalls everywhere, but I just have to follow my own reason and logic and try to do what seems best rather than just following some tried and true path. And, you know, that's what I tried to do with this paper, uh, liberal radicalism. And I was sure, you know, it couldn't be published in any academic journal. I was just throwing it out there and that I was risking Zoe's career in the process. But the thing is, it's been downloaded like in the first three weeks more than my most downloaded paper has been. Yeah. and And a couple of journals have already written to me to solicit it. So I think if you have the courage to just get out there and say, no, this is what my logic tells me. It's clear. And I'm going to stand up for it and fight for it. I think People need that because they're so worn down by the cynicism of our era at a time when the only people who are willing to stand up and fight for things are reactionary populists like Trump and Corbyn. And if we're going to save the world from that, people of good faith have to have the same courage.
1: A hundred percent agree. And One of the things I wanted to add to that is that one of the things that I've been noticing about people not being able to stand behind an opinion is that we have this kind of call-out culture where we accuse people, if they change their opinions over time, for contradicting themselves. So someone can come out, like, if I'd presented my views on, you know, economic theory a couple of years ago, and they would change to how they are now, people might go back, and they do this sometimes. They get my old tweets, and they share, they, like, You know, retweet it and say, well, you know, Reva at one point thought this stuff about Medicaid or Medicare, and now she's contradicting herself. And I think this is a real shame because you want the kind of people in the public arena who can update over time. Like, you know, you're saying "Like, I'm going to seek new information. And according to my current levels of justification, I believe that X and it may change. But the idea is I'm still going to put myself out there to say it because by being a beacon for that idea, you're allowing yourself to kind of receive feedback and update your model as you go along. And I, I feel like it's really rare to to find people who are willing to do that because of this kind of contradiction attack that gets hurled at people all the time.
2: One person that I don't know if you know, but I think, think would be very simpatico with you is Devin Zweigel. She is also in the Bay Area. And she has a great practice along the lines of what you're describing, which is if you go on her website, she has sort of like a statement of her political principles, and it has tracked changes on it because it's been changing over time. So you can actually see the evolution of Devin's views. And I think in some ways she followed a very similar trajectory to you. She came from a very sort of libertarian-ish place. And she's been evolving towards, you know, what I would call a a, a, ra- a more radical liberal liberal place or something like that. And you can see that on her blog, which is very cool.
1: Yeah, I lo- I, I think I I, I know Devin. I I think she's amazing. I have seen that, so I I think that's such a great example of kind of standing behind not only your ideas but the changes that can happen between different ideas. And I think that. Just an example of showing how people can shift over time will hopefully, you know, give some evidence to other people that they can have changing ideas and still stand behind them with courage. And I'm going to guess that radical exchange as a movement is going to try and catch that example of that kind of like that kind of group of people who are very open to new ideas and willing to kind of play around with how they think about things and be very open to, you know, even things that threaten their current models. So like in terms of building radical exchanges a movement, like what are your next steps? Like what kind of people are you trying to get involved? And in? if someone's listening to this podcast and wants to get involved, what can they do?
2: So we have four tracks to the movement. One is ideas and research, which, you know, is, is things like this paper that we're writing, but also, you know, history and a mil- million million other things. So all the fields that you described and that's led by a historian at Georgetown who's a perfect example of the breadth of this movement but she comes from sort of a leftist anarchist tradition and then we we're also trying to get artists and communicators, journalists, etc. involved and leading that is a wonderful woman named Jennifer Lynn Marone, who's done really cool work about data slavery and actually incorporated herself and auctions her data online as a way of highlighting the the current oppression of our data system. We have for the entrepreneurship and technology track, which is the third one, Mamie Reingold, who's the chair of this year's DevCon, the Ethereum conference. And finally, we have an activism and government track led by Mark Lutter, who's the head of the Center for Innovative Governance, which is the biggest charter city movement, basically. So we really have a very broad range of people across these areas, and we need all of these types of people involved. We need people who can originate and develop the ideas and as you said, continue to help them change. We need artists to help imagine these different worlds and to help people imagine them and to use that imagination to refine our own understanding of them. We need entrepreneurs and technologists to build things so we can actually experiment and find the flaws and fix them before they go to broad scales and at the same time build experiences that will make people familiar with these ideas. And we need activists to start to organize politically around these things and offer a real alternative to the reactionaries of the left and the right so that we can have enough hope in the broad public that we don't wind up back in the 1930s, which honestly is what motivates me in all of this, the fear that that's where we're headed. So people of all those descriptions are extremely welcome in the movement, and we need all the help we can get. We need people to help organize the event. We need people who want to build careers in this area. The number of companies that have written to me like wanting you know, help in implementing these ideas is far, far beyond the capacity of me or the few people I know to do them. So people who are really educated and want to make a career out of these things, there are so many opportunities for it. We need help with each of these tracks. We need people who will actually do art projects, who will do entrepreneurship, and who will want to present at the conference. So these are all great ways to, to be involved. And emailing me, the executive director, Jeffrey Lee Yaw, or Avital Balwit, or Charlie Thompson, who are helping us out, are all great entry points for that.
0: Glenn, I think it's, uh, it's fitting to end on a call to action. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a fantastic episode. Where can people uh, you know follow you on the internet and, and, and learn more besides reading uh, reading the book and the paper, obviously, and, and what should people stay tuned for?
2: Yeah, so uh, at Glen Weil is my Twitter handle. You can email me at Weil at Princeton.edu. W E Y L at Princeton.edu. And stay tuned on Twitter for many new papers. I've got papers that will be coming out. This one with Jaron will be coming out very shortly. I've got a paper about matching markets coming out very soon. Vitalik and I are working on a new paper that we're sort of tentatively calling the te- teach them to fish rather than give them a fish paper where we're going to try to describe like, methodologically how we come up with these ideas rather than just like presenting them. And there will be many other papers like that. I've got a paper that I'm particularly excited about that I'm working on with Kadim Nore about cultural capital taxation. So, you know, in the in the book, we talk about taxing physical capital. We want to also tax cultural capital that people have. So we have uh, m- many, many things coming.
0: Yeah. And- Amazing. Yeah, on, on that note, actually, I'm curious to get your perspective a little bit. So, uh, Y Combinator, you know, famous startup accelerator, is famous for having this sort of request for for products, request for startups, sort of a page of where they want to see entrepreneurs, you know, experiment and, and and build new things. in. and I'm curious for all the uh, you know mini Glenn Wiles out there, or, you know, people with your you know interests, in, inclinations, and, and and skills. Like, if you could clone yourself, you know, a bunch of times what's your sort of request for papers or request for experimentation in terms of, Hey, I don't necessarily have time. I don't have time to do this right now, but I want to see other people go pursue it. That's that's a great question. So, so in the, it's different across all these different areas. So in
2: ideas and research, I think the most, some of the most interesting things are trying to deal with identity issues online. So distributed identities through networks. I think that's super interesting, I think trying to extend some of the ideas in the book about taxation to human capital and trying to figure out how you would deal in a world with like bioengineering and things like that with taxing monopolies that people have on human capacities. If people start turning their kids into X-Men, how are we going to deal with that through some sort of taxation system? So I think those are super interesting questions. In the arts and communications area, trying to build game experiences that incorporate this, that people can really get a feeling, whether it's something like SimCity Civilization or some sort of role-playing game where there's commonly owned property and voting. I think that would be super amazing. I also think there's really great possibilities in terms of a film or like an Atlas Shrugged for these types of ideas. In the entrepreneurship and technology space, I think one of the things I'm most excited about is having a co-working space that is has fluid spatial dynamics, according to these ideas, and where there's a quadratic voting governing it. And in the activism and government space, I think the thing I'm most excited about in the near term is data labor unions. And uh, I've, I've been ha- trying to help seed some of those. So, so those are the so, some areas that I, I'm particularly bullish on, and can only play a small role in addressing.
0: You're slightly related to one of those ideas, you know, obviously there's uh, there's debt and equity in in companies, but but for people, there's, you know, there's there's only debt in, in terms of financing. And you know, there's always been, been this idea that has very dystopian um, implications of of equity investing in people. But you're starting to see applications like you know, income sharing on an education level, where things like Make School, things like Lambda School, in in only upside cases, you know, there, there's no debt and there's no you know, basically equity investing in people, but only, like income sharing only in cases of extreme or, or cases of upside. So in, in win-win scenarios, and and now people start to ask. Can that have implications or applications beyond education? What is sort of your view uh, on on that idea?
2: Oh, that's one of my favorite ideas from Milton Friedman. And I don't think there's anything dystopian about it. I actually think, you know, one of my favorite ways of implementing that is actually through uh, the government in a way that progressives would love, which is if you go to higher education, then you pay a higher progressive tax rate from then on. You know, that's that's basically the same idea. So. I think I think that's a great idea. I think that there's all sorts of human capital, you know, expenses that that should have some aspect of equity uh, associated with them. And it's not just human capital; it's also housing. Housing is all funded by debt. That makes no sense. Housing should be funded much more by equity. And and I have a colleague Atif Mian at Princeton who's done great work thinking about equity financing of more assets that we have. So. Absolutely, I think that that's that that's very much in the spirit of radical markets, and it's something we we talk about a little bit in the book.
0: Where do you net? What about like derivatives on people, like uh almost like you know betting on on people's uh, you know success or, or other sort of you know like financial assets you know abstracted from that?
2: I'm I'm not in general a big fan of derivatives. I, I actually have some work. my Some of my first work with Eric Posner was actually about the fact that bets. Are pretty problematic because both sides of the bet think that they're taking advantage of the person on the other side of the bet rather than being taken advantage of by themselves. So, you know, in, in beneficial trades, we both think we benefit, but in most bets, unless you're insuring someone's risk, which is the case in the examples we were just talking about, Eric, but if you're just taking a bet on something, you, you both think that you're Sort of taking advantage of the other person, and so one of you, or maybe both of you, are right, and that's not the sort of market that that I want to promote.
0: I think the the utopian case of um, you know equity financing in, in people, I, I think, is perhaps perhaps twofold, or at least two potential. You know, success cases are one that if we all have equity in each other, maybe we are more like like or less likely to be violent because it'll it, or you know uh, have conflict because it'll less affect you know it'll affect us. We have skin in the game and everyone's everyone's uh, like peace um, and success. And then two that when we walk past a a person on the street who doesn't have you know with they need, if, if we had more incentive alignment, maybe we would. Care more. I mean, that's a simplistic way in terms
2: of. Oh, Eric. that 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 I all agree with. But the thing I don't agree with is writing derivatives on the basis of no actual right. interest. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I I'm all in favor of spreading dumb notion of broader ownership in, in human capital. And that's the problem I was referring to. And I think there's better ways of doing it even than standard equity financing that are more related to the common ownership ideas that I was talking about. There, there are really challenging problems there, but that was one of my calls for you know research. But, but that I'm all in favor of. But what I'm not in favor of is two unrelated parties taking offsetting bets on somebody else's success. That, that just creates risk unnecessarily.
0: Totally. Awesome. Thank you for, for humoring that line of thought.
1: No, thank you, Glenn, for setting an example of courage in research. Thanks.
2: Thank thank you both. This was this was really fun conversation.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.